Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the daily Bible reading show. I can't hear anything. Let me check my interface. Testing, test. Yep, that's a bit better. Um, yeah, so we are looking at four passages today, Friday, March the 19th. It is the weekend. Ah, oh, so amazing. And what a wonderful day it is. I hope it's going to be like this. Uh, over the weekend, I can hear birds chirping outside. So amazing. Today, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter, chapter, I can't see, <laughs> chapter 30, John chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 6, and Galatians chapter 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your abundant blessings to us, the eternal life, the forgiveness, this blessing that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Thank you as well for speaking to us in your word about this gospel, reminding us about your goodness and your grace through him. So please, would you do so even now as we come to you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So on to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its moldings on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the Ark of the Testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer an authorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in a census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in a census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet 
when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to them and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250 and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you, whoever compounds any of it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacti, and anika, and galbanum. Sounds like Korean galbanum, like galbachi. <laughs> sweet spices and pure frankincense, of each shall there be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned, by, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it, very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you, holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any of it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. So let's see, there is one, two, three four different parts to this chapter. Let's look at part number one, this altar of incense. And it's really interesting. It sounds a lot like the giant altar barbecue pit that's in front of the tent because it's got the horns as well, except that this is, it says you're not supposed to put any burnt offering or grain offering on it, verse 9, but you're supposed to put um, incense um, on it every day. Oh, sorry, verse 9 is talk, talking about unauthorized incense. So there's a very prescribed way of using this altar, which is like a mini barbecue pit, where there's meant to be incense or fragrant uh, smoke from this incense. You know, people who are Asian, you have these incense pots in your homes, uh, will be familiar with that. It usually fills the whole room with this smell. Uh, but this is meant to fill the holy place inside the tent, so if I remember correctly, there is meant to be the lamps, and it does say you're meant to uh, light the incense at the same time as you light the lamps in the morning and the evening. So verse 7, Aaron, you know, in the morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn this incense, and the evening at twilight, verse 8, he shall also burn the incense. So at the same time as he lights the lamps, he shall also burn the incense on the altar of incense. And I think the other, the other thing is that table with the bread of presence. So those three pieces of furniture 
in the holy of holy, the holy place, and then there's a holy of holies that separates, uh, separated by this uh, curtain. So um, yeah, so he shall always have this incense always burning uh, in the tent itself. And once a year, they're supposed to make atonement on the horns. That means to cleanse it, to make it holy, to make it separate. And it's through this, again, death. That's meant to be blood. The blood of the sin offering of the atonement, verse 10. She shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. And it says that this is most holy to the Lord. And the idea of holiness is something that's just specially only for God and for nothing else. And that idea carries through in all the other sections as well. So that's section number one on the altar of incense. Section number two about this census tax and just collecting a tax from every single person. You're rich or poor, you're meant to collect this half shekel tax, tax, I think. Verse 15, the rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less. Every single person, rich or poor, is meant to give this tax. And they're meant to count every people. You know, this census is just counting who are the people, the adult, the adults in the population, just to know how many people there are. Uh, often it's used to number um, fighting men. You know, uh, how strong a country is is dependent on its army, its military might, the military age people. Uh, just to mention, if any of you have that census letter from the UK, uh, please, please fill that up. Uh, you uh, will, if you open it up, you get a code, and please go online. You can fill in that code. It only takes, um, well, five minutes, maybe ten minutes. But the questions are very simple. If you don't do that, there is a fine, uh, up to about a thousand thousand pounds so please do that it's so simple you have until this sunday i think until the 21st so please don't forget that uh, by the way that's a digression but here there's this census and interestingly each person verse 12 when you take the census of the people of israel then each shall give a ransom for his life to the lord so the census is meant to coincide with them uh, giving the sacrifice, this ransom, that means I'm paying for my own life with this death of this animal. Why? When you number them, that they be no plague among them when you number them. So I think it's meant to guard against this judgment, this plague from God when you number people. Uh, it doesn't say why, but uh, we get hints of this later on in other events where, you know, when you number of people and you take a census and you go ah ha 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 look there are so many of us you know we are really strong and you get very proud of the fact of how big you are and the ransom reminds you that hey you you don't belong to yourselves you know it was god who paid for all of you and therefore you almost are paying back not not paying back rather you you realize that um you were paid for this and through this ransom and so it's mainly guard against pride against wrongful motivation when you do the census because there's a lot of personal motivation uh, if you think of it, if you just did a census of your own church and you go, ha, 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 you know, I have so many people in my church or I have so many, um, you know, services this year, you know, that went really well, it, uh, to guard against that and to realize that, hey, every person here is, you know, redeemed by God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, nothing that we've done, all this is God's doing, gathering us around himself. And it's meant to guard us against that kind of prideful reflection that, hey, you know, I built this kind of, empire that kind of thing and i think um here is you know god's um safety net <laughs> to, to guard people like moses like the leaders 
from um, experiencing judgment from God over their pride if they do this uh, commandment of taking the census. So that's section number two. Section number one, the altar. Section number two, the census. Section number three, this bronze basin. It's just a big basin made out of bronze. That's, it says for washing, verse 18, that is in between the tent of meeting on one side and the altar. And the altar is the barbecue pit. And here there is this basin. And especially fill water in it. And Aaron and his sons, who were the priests, were meant to wash their hands and their feet. So before they go into the tent of meeting, they must wash their hands, uh, and they must uh, sometimes maybe even clean the the sacrifice with the same water. Otherwise, it says verse twenty, so that they may not may not die. It repeats in verse twenty one, so that they may not die. <laughs> Sorry, may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet. So such is the ritual of cleanliness before you come before God. You need to wash symbolically your hands and your feet so that you may not be killed by God because of your uncleanness. So that's the purpose of that bronze basin. Uh, I think it's also symbolic also in Revelation. No, there's that sea. You know, there's that sea in front of um, the throne room of God. And so I think this bronze basin also pictures this sea and um, that is in front of God's throne. Uh, and there's symbolism with that picture as well. So that's picture number three. Picture number four is this perfume, this anointing oil and incense. And so there's uh, two recipes. The first recipe, um, there's uh, verse 23, take finest spices, liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, sweet smelling cinnamon, half as much. And then that is 250 and 250 aromatic cane, very sweet smelling stuff and spices and 500 of cassia and a hint of olive oil. And they're supposed to blend it by a perfumer, verse 25. And it'll become this holy anointing oil. And you meant to anoint or you sprinkle on the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. And also all the furniture, the table, its utensils, the lampstand, its utensils, the altar of incense. So everything is smelling of this perfume, of this oil. And verse 29, it's meant to consecrate this, that it will become holy. And whatever touches them will become holy. And so also the priests, Aaron and his sons, verse 30, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. So with this oil, sweet smelling oil, this perfume. And you shall say to the people of Israel, you shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. Oh, sorry, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. And it says, you shall not be poured on the body, body of an ordinary person. So it's only for the tent, for God's uh, tent and the altar and for his priests, but no one else. And you shall not make no other like its composition. Cannot uh, copy this, it's copyrighted. <laughs> it is holy and it shall be holy to you. So again, this idea of something that's reserved for God's use alone. It's holy because God has said, this is just for me. And the idea of holy, again, is um, something in that's seen in terms of its use. You know, um, you can have two spoons, but one spoon is holy because you say, as I say, only this spoon is to be used by me. You know, no one else in this whole house can use a spoon. So holy means set apart for this particular use by God alone. 
Verse 33, whoever compounds any of it, and he tries to copy it, or whoever puts it on anyone and outsiders shall be cut off from the people. So there's a penalty about this anointing oil. And next, there's also this incense. Verse 34, take sweet spices. And I don't know what these other words are, stacti and onica and galbanum and sweet spices of pure frankincense. And I think this is the, this is some kind of plant Thing, and they're supposed to make verse 35 an incense blended as a perfumer. Again, incense is something that you burn to produce this smoke. And then they season with salt, pure and holy. And you beat some of it very small and put it part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where God says, I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Again, this idea of holy is separate for God. It's meant to be used for God's use only. Verse 37, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition you cannot make for yourselves. It shall be you for you holy to the Lord, only for God's use. Whoever makes it, you know, to use as a perfume, cut off from the people. So there's a penalty of using this for anything other than for God alone. So yeah, so interesting, interesting, isn't it? Um, there's this um, concept of something that's exclusive for God alone, the furniture, the smoke, the incense, the perfume, even, even the people. That means God actually sets apart you know, certain things, certain people to be reserved for him and him alone. And therefore, when God calls us holy through Jesus Christ, we've been made holy through him. It's not just that you've been made special or suddenly you're list super holy, holier than thou. Sometimes you hear that kind of expression, right? You know, you, 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 you're better than other people. No, no, no. It's talking about how you're meant to be living only for God alone. You're no longer living for the world. You're no, no longer living for your own self. But everything you do, everything you say, you know, it's it's meant to be uh, glorifying God and meant to be pleasing before God. It's meant to display to the world that you no longer belong to them. You're copyrighted by God. And so he will use you according to his own purposes. And there's something special about that. You know, that, you know, you now have this purpose, you know, now have this value in God's eyes. And so that's something very special. Cool. So that's Exodus chapter 30. Yeah, good passage. Let's move on to John chapter 9 in the New Testament. So John chapter 9. As he passed by, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. Oh, wow, this guy has never seen his entire life. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And that's a very interesting perspective um, that says that if you are uh, inflicted with some kind of terrible disease, you know, you're born with this blindness, that means you must have done something wrong or your parents did something wrong that they were punished uh, through their children. And Jesus answered, verse 3, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. How interesting that this horrible thing happened so that something good might be done by God, that God might be displayed, his God's work might be displayed for him. And that's a very... Um, well, wow, very unique perspective on suffering, on disease, that God actually has allowed this thing to happen for this man's entire life. That until this point, therefore, Jesus might do something to show that God really is working through Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we must work 
the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and then made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Can you imagine? He took this mud. He's quick, free. <laughs> and then he, he, he kind of made mud. And then he put it on the man's eyes. And he go, said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which, meant, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. How odd. How strange it is. This man already was blind has Jesus a spit and mud on his face, rub it all over his face. And then Jesus says, okay, go to this pool and then wash it off. He said, why did you do this to me? But no, he did that. He obeyed Jesus. He went to this pool and this pool means scent. And there's probably some symbolism that Jesus has sent him there and he obeyed that scent. And as he came back, he could suddenly see for the first time in his entire life. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. They couldn't recognize him. I mean, he it was just so unbelievable. How can this man, he looks like him, but he can see. And he himself has to convince them, I really am your neighbor. I really am the person who grew up with you. Verse 10, so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. <laughs> Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly brought, been blind. And you have to wonder, what, what's going on? Uh, why didn't they take him to, I don't know, McDonald's? I don't know, if you've just, you haven't seen your entire life, and suddenly you can see, I would want to go to watch a movie. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily want to go to church. But no, they brought him to the temple, to the Pharisees. Well, I'm not sure if the temple, but they brought him to these religious leaders. The Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind, now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So that's why, you know, this all this happened on this very holy day when no work is supposed to be done. And remember, Jesus was just talking about doing work while there's still light. So suddenly you see that you don't realize until verse 14 that that's where this symbolism of work is happening, that Jesus is actually intentionally working on this Sabbath day while there is still light because there will come a time when the light is gone when you can't do this work anymore. So Jesus is almost making them full use of the time, especially because it's the Sabbath day. But, 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 because it's the Sabbath day, aha, he's going to get into trouble. Yeah, so verse 15, so the Pharisees asked again how he had received a sight, and he said to them, he put mud in my, on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. He keeps repeating himself. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? 
And there was a division among them. So some of them were saying, you know, he broke the rule, so he cannot be from God. The others said, but, you know, a person who is not from God can't do these amazing things that only God can do. You know, cure a man who has been blind his entire life. So this must be something that God has done. So even among themselves, they were disagreeing and divided. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say? What do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes. And he said, he is a prophet. So a person from God, someone who speaks God's words. That's what a prophet is. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. Interesting, isn't it? And they, they could not believe that this guy, maybe they thought he was faking it. You know, how can it be? They've never seen it before. So maybe it cannot be that Jesus healed him, that he was blind his entire life and had received a sight until they called the parents of the man who had received a sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? You know, how then does he now see? I say, maybe you're you're tricking us. Maybe all this last, don't know how many years, decades, you know, you're, you're just acting as if you're blind and your parents were in on it, maybe to, you know, swindle money or that kind of thing. So how then can he now, how then can he now see? Uh, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but... How he now sees, we do not know, <laughs> nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. And then, he, and then verse 22 says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, they feared the leaders. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. He was kicked out of church. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So the parents were afraid of them. That's why they didn't dare say of their own accord. They didn't dare say, oh, we, definitely this is true. Is it? No, no, he, he, he's, he's old enough. He's of age. Just ask him. So they're willing for their son to get into trouble, but they don't want to get into trouble because they know that the trouble is you get kicked out of uh, this synagogue, this religious community, especially if you confess that Jesus is this man of God, this Christ or this king. You know, anyone who says that, out you go. You know, they've already kind of like made up their mind, cannot be. Anyone that we decide is wrong, you have to say is wrong as well. Otherwise, you can't be part of us. So, it, you know, it shows that culture of fear, that dismissiveness and just authoritarianism within this religious community. Verse 24, so for the second time, they call the man who had been blind and said to him, it's kind of funny, he goes in and out, in and out, and he says, give glory to God, meaning swear to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So they've already made up their mind. They, said, they, they didn't even ask him a question. They said, we know that this we are right. This guy is wrong. And then verse 25, he's answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Uh, yeah, I think Isaac Watts, you know, Amazing Grace, that's where you get the line. I once was blind, but now I see. Uh, that's verse uh, 25. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already. He sounds quite frustrated. <laughs> and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. Oh, we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, this guy, we do not know where he comes from. 
The man answered, "Why, this is an amazing thing! You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes." We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. <laughs> They answered him, "You were born in utter sin. How? And you would teach us?" And they cast him out. You see, they they brought him back in, and then they kick him out. Why? Because they brought him in only to hear what they want to hear. And when they heard something that they didn't want to hear, when they realized that actually he was speaking truth and making sense, and that they themselves were being, you know, hypocritical, they didn't want to hear it. They kicked him out. Says you are the one who is sinful, and it's all based on their own judgment. On their own anger, you know, I think they're just frustrated when he said this, and it shows that they're not thinking rationally. They're having this kind of like trial. They're bringing in witnesses, but really they've already made up their minds, and it's just a show. It's just a show. You know, they've already made up their minds and says, you know, we are in the right. You either agree with us, if not, you guys are in the wrong. Verse thirty-five. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, "Do you believe in the Son of Man?" He answered, "And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him?" Jesus said to him, "You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you." He said, "Lord, I believe," and he worshipped him. Jesus said, "For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and said to him, "Are we also blind?" Jesus said to them, "If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains." It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is fully explaining this miracle as a kind of parable. So even the miracle itself is a parable. It means it's a picture of something that's deeper going on behind this man who was born blind and now can see. That's just a picture of something that's going on inside. In my heart, inside your heart, because Jesus is saying, if you are blind, Jesus come to help you to see. But if you claim to see, if you think you know everything, there's nothing else for you to know. Jesus come to almost blind you and to cover you from seeing the truth about Him. And I think it's therefore the blindness, and it's almost a picture of ignorance, but willful ignorance, prideful ignorance, you know, prideful rebellion against. The truth, you know. Oftentimes, you know, blindness. If we say blindness is ignorance, we get that. You know, oh, you're so blind, you don't get the truth, or maybe you haven't thought about it enough. But that's not the kind of blindness Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of blindness that says, "I will never, ever accept that truth because I already made up my mind." But the kind of blindness that says, "You know, I can't see. I am helpless. I, I, I can't." Actually, see anything of myself. I need God's help in order to open my eyes. That's the kind of blindness Jesus has precisely come to open and to give us sight and to give us knowledge and to be able to see. He says that you have seen him, verse thirty-seven, and it is he who is speaking to you. To be able to see Jesus, in other words, and therefore to respond by saying, "I will worship you." So, therefore, you know, to come to Jesus is to confess、uh, our sins. Yes. 
our lowliness, but also our blindness. You know, when it comes to just understanding His Word, you know, knowing who He is, you know, this guy is so innocent. Says, "Who is He? I want to know." I, I don't say, "Jesus." You know, I wish, you know, that you'd help me understand more of who You are. You know, I, I, I can't work this out on my own. You know, no matter how many times I've read the Bible, no matter how many times I've thought about this, it has always been You, Your Spirit, Your grace that's been. Enabling me to open my spiritual eyes to gaze upon this wonderful truth of the gospel. It's not me again, but it's you working through your spirit, opening up my heart to you. And so, please, would you continue to do this? And the opposite of that is to go, "Hey, you know, I know enough. Hey, you know, I went to Cambridge. Hey, you know, I've studied the Bible. These are Pharisees, by the way. They're Bible experts, Bible teachers. They know everything." But they refuse to see anything other than what they already see. They refuse to acknowledge their wrongness. And Jesus' plainful, you know, rightness and humility and work of God. They refuse, 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 refuse to see that. And you know, uh, they they actually say to him, "Are we also blind?" In other words, there, Jesus says, "If you are blind, you have no guilt." They said almost like you're saying we're blind, but actually we don't think we're blind. So it's almost like saying, uh, "Do you think I'm stupid?" That kind of thing. That you know, sometimes you say that, right? Is it? Who are you to tell me this answer to speak to me this way? Do you think I'm stupid? Do you think I didn't study this? I know this answer, and that kind of you know uh, unwillingness to be taught, only one willingness to hear others and to hear truth, shows that we have this kind of guilt that's remaining upon us. If you're blind. You would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains, and it's the guiltiness again of being blind, blinding yourself to the truth. Can I just say that sometimes um, you can you can see this in interactions over the Bible, especially you know here's Jesus, you know Jesus speaking truth, and then you have the person who's going, wow, you know I, I can't. I'm struggling to understand this. Can you please explain to me? I want to learn this, and they're constantly asking questions in a way that they actually genuinely want to learn. But there are other people who come to this truth over the Bible again, context of Bible study. There'll be some people who are there who only want to speak their truth, and therefore are unwilling to listen and learn from this truth. It's almost as if they're above the Bible. They're above Jesus. And can I just say, especially if you're a Bible study leader, to be very careful about that. You know, I know. Sometimes we say, "Oh, we are the ones asking the questions." But you can tell sometimes as Bible study leaders, I I do this as well. Sometimes I ask the kind of questions, and then no matter what people say, right, I invite the answer, and then I just gloss over it, and I wait. Okay, here's the real answer. I'm going to give you the real answer. And yes, you know there is that power responsibility that you should not be ashamed to teach during a Bible study. You know it is your job to make sure that the truth is spoken. But there is also that kind of air of pride. You have to be very careful of. I I I notice it myself. Sometimes I'm I'm going. <laughs> I have the answer. Whatever you give, right? It's not going to be the full answer. I have the best answer. And then you say, Oh, thank you very much. But here's you know. But what well, did you notice that? Did you notice that? And actually, almost to it comes across very very uh, mean spirited. It comes across very ungraciously. When you know you've just, and sometimes it comes because you're so stressed. You prepare the Bible study. I understand. I understand that happens to me as well. But it's very important that we come to Jesus as we come to His Word, always willing to listen to Jesus. 
and saying, hey, you know, this is something that Jesus taught me. And don't be surprised if Jesus does that during the Bible study. If Jesus does that sometimes through the answers of your friends around you who might be uh, more insightful simply because of their humility. And, you know, that's the best kind of Bible study, actually, whereby Jesus uses you to ask questions in such a way that the answers come not just from them, but from the Bible. And that's the best kind of Bible study whereby, and you are learning as well from that. And you're able to interact with the Bible. You're able to interact together with the Bible. And you're all able to learn together from the Bible, that ultimate, ultimate authority. And just be very careful. Sometimes in the name of nervousness, we rush to give that answer that overturns all the other answers as if my answer is the only one. And that spirit of, I don't have anything else to learn, I don't any, not even from you and not even from the Bible, it can come across very pharisaical and very, very prideful and very blind. Yeah, we, as, if, as if we can see and therefore Jesus says, actually, you don't see. You don't see it all. And, there, and sometimes you just need to be prepared to say, I don't know the answer to this particular question. Or even when you do have the answer, to constantly go back, I think, you know, from here, from this verse, Jesus seems to be saying that somehow that confidence might sometimes be misplaced. You know, isn't that what he says? You know, we see and therefore your guilt remains. It's that guilt that was there before, that same pride. And any opportunity to break down that pride, to say that, hey, actually, this, this bit here, I need to see better. But no, 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 I see it, I see it. And therefore, that pride and that guilt just remains upon me. And I, I, I think, I, you know, I, I noticed that in myself. And, you know, God is using this passage to teach me that. I wonder if any of you noticed that in yourselves as well. You know, again, that attitude and that kind of answer that flows out of the text, you know, it's just so helpful and I think just very, very encouraging if you're able to model that in the way that you lead your studies, if you, if you, you answer the questions and answering in such a way that actually your text is giving that answer. John chapter 9. Okay, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 6. Here we go, Proverbs chapter 6. My son. Every time, every time I hear that word, my son, I think of Jorel in Superman in the Fortress of Solitude. My son. <laughs> uh, played by Marlon Brando in the Christopher Reeve movies in the 1970s and 1980s as well. Uh, but in the more recent one with, um, what's that guy's name? Um, it's the gladiator guy, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe played Jorel in the more recent Superman movie, Man of Steel. Yeah, so my son. <laughs> Imagine Jorel teaching Superman, Kalel. Uh, but here's this son, uh, this father giving advice to his son. Um, maybe it's, uh, some say it's written by Solomon, in which case it's the son being the, the king's son, you know, adhering to all the, the, the words of God and the fear of God. Hence, this has special significance for his obedience before God. In that aspect as well, but either way, you know, it's there's a lot of love, a lot of relationship, and this knowledge and wisdom that's being passed on from father to son. So, it, um, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter six. My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. If you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. <laughs> For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, 
Hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So just this first section, five verses. Now, the father seems to be warning the son against verse one, putting up security for your neighbor, putting up security. That means um, pledging money um, for your neighbor. You know, maybe your neighbor is bought something and then doesn't have enough money for it and it's going to pay him back, but you pay a kind of security deposit like for rent or something or for that car for that house that kind of thing and say okay I'll, I'll step in I'll pay for that and he's almost saying that being that kind of position whereby uh, if that person then doesn't honor their deal you will lose your security deposit is very precarious he says if you're snared in the words of your mouth and caught in the words of your mouth then do this and save yourself verse 3 you know try to get out of the situation as quickly as possible because verse 3 you've come into the hand of your neighbor so he says, plead urgently, try to get out of the situation as quickly as possible. You know, don't sleep, <laughs> eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber, and save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. Means don't, don't get snapped, uh, snared into this trap. Um, interesting, interesting, yeah. Uh, very Asian. <laughs> I, I know that, for example, uh, my mom used to have uh, very pantang to do this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I guess there's a lot, a lot of wisdom in that. Verse six: Go to the ant, O sluggard. Oh, this is a very famous verse. You know, go to the ant. Look at the ant. Can you imagine ant? You know, you sluggard, you lazy person. Look at that. Look at that very hardworking insect. Consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So this ant doesn't need like some boss to say, oh, go and do this, go do that. You know, industriously and instinctively, this ant, you know, gathers, 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 gathers food over summer. And then in winter, he has all this storehouse of food already. And he says to this lazy sluggard, verse 9, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? You know, this person, how, how long are you going to have your nap? Uh, I was watching Pachukang, and Pachukang is this uh, Singapore comedy um, that they've just uploaded onto YouTube for free. I used to watch it 30 years ago. And he has uh, these workers who are always going for breaks. They call it Tao, Tao Hui Break. They always going to have this Tao Fu Fa break every time. He said, Oi, why aren't you working? Don't stop having your breaks for so long. And it's like, it reminds me of Pachukang scolding his workers. You know, how long will you lie there and sleep? Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber. Oh, just for a little while, a little while. A little folding of the hands to rest. You know, just rest a little bit. And verse 11, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. You'll still steal all your, well, your money away. And want like an armed man. You will just take everything from you. You have no way of resisting. Verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, wings with his eyes, wink, 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 signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. And that's what it's talking about. This guy, 
who's using all his means, all his thinking, all his actions to try to break people up, sowing discord, causing people to argue with one another, always causing controversy, you know. So, and, you know, usually very smart people who kind of devise ways, how can I cause people to kind of like back out, you know, argue with one another, some controversial topic like the vaccine or some political position like Brexit, so sowing discord and causing people to just disagree with one another, just argue with one another, Verse 15, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing. Oh, wow. And verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are abomination to him. So there are six horrible things, but then number seven is the really bad thing. And then haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and, ver and number seven, one who sows discord amongst brothers. And this is just repeating that point that out of all these horrible, horrible things, you know, someone who lies, you know, someone that, um, that, that does wicked things and who lies is again, but the worst one is number seven, the one who amongst his own brothers, amongst his own church, you know, causes all these disagreements among one another. This guy is just a troublemaker. You know, he uses everything, all his scheming, just to get people to argue and takao and just feel unloved towards one another. You know, God really hates that above everything else. And it's just a warning. He said, please, please don't be that guy. <laughs> the person always just finding fault, finding reason, you know, somehow there's always some controversy. <laughs> No, nothing good nothing good to rejoice about always some problem to kind of like trigger people around yeah it's really really horrible yeah a uh, very irritating kind of personality actually verse 20 my son keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching you know remember Appa Amma is teaching you okay yeah verse 21 bind them on your heart always tie them around your neck when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. Interesting. You know, I always can't remember what your mom, your dad used to teach you. I was talking to a friend. And sometimes, you know, it's in your older age. You remember, hey, last time, you know, my mom used to tell me that. And you remember just how loving it was and just how wise all that advice was. And it's true. It's true. Yeah. Verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman. Uh -huh. Verse 24, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. <laughs> For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. And so here is a warning against verse 24, the evil woman the tongue of the adulteress, you know, the, do not desire her beauty, do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. He's saying it's, it's very, very attractive to, 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 to go into this adulteress, this kind of relationship with someone who isn't your wife. And maybe you have your own wife and you have this relationship with someone who is not your wife because it just seems so attractive. This person's eyelashes are so attractive for some reason. And then verse 26, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, very cheap. 
You know, I just bought a loaf of bread, 99p. <laughs> but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So, and then there are scales of prices, you know. Here, you think it doesn't cost anything, but then it's even worse if you get into a, this adulterous relationship with someone who already is has a life partner, a husband, and then, you know, hunts down a precious life. It'll cost you your life. Verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not burn? That's so obvious, right? Yeah, or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he goes hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He'll get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not be spared. He will not spare when he takes revenge. The, probably this woman's husband takes revenge and he will accept no compensation. He will refuse though he multiply gifts. He's trying to oh, take all my money. You don't kill me. The person say, you, you had this relationship that you shouldn't have. And the person will be just so angry. Nothing you can do. No amount of money will appease him. No amount of sorries. You know, it, it's just not worth it getting into this horrible, horrible situation of breaking someone else's marriages, breaking your own marriage. Yeah, there you go. Very, very um, wise advice that's given, you know, to sons. I, I suppose um, this would have been in the context someone, a very young son, you know, your mom and your dad speaking to you and just laying down that foundation uh, for that healthy relationship and those warnings against those wrong types of relationship when kids are very, very young. Um, recently, you know, um, there's this youth group in the Chinese church and, you know, youth groups will always have periodically these sessions on relationships and on, on like dating. Is that okay? You know, what kind of things should we be looking in a life partner? And I said to them, you know, the Bible simply sets up marriage. You know, the way in which you deal with everything leading up to marriage is to look at marriage. You know, anything to, is dating okay? You know, um, how do I call lawyer? The kind of thing. And all these kind of questions are secondary. In fact, the Bible does not deal with them directly, but it deals with marriage. It says, ultimately, whatever you do, that is the goal. That is the standard. And that helps you then give the right kind of expectation when it comes as to what it is that we are getting into this relationship with. What what is will be involved? This is a lifelong thing, you know. Can you have one, two girlfriends? You know, all that kind of questions is all sorted when you realize marriage is one life partner, one man, one woman, lifelong and before God and then inseparable. And, you know, that just sets and clarifies and just helpfully uh, strengthens, you know, God's commandment for what it means to have this healthy relationship uh, physically, relationally, and spiritually that's modeled with our relationship with God. Just marriage, you know, setting that up as the standard. So yeah, Proverbs chapter 6. Okay, all right. Uh, last chapter for today. Uh, now, we are looking at Galatians chapter 5. And I know, I know I'm skipping actually two chapters because I missed uh, Wednesday's reading of Galatians chapter 3. And yesterday I was too tired to do both 3 and 4. And today I'm just going to read chapter 5. But the reason for that, because um, I'm tired. <laughs> 
that's the main reason. But also, you know, what I'd like to do, if time permits and God willing, tomorrow I'll record them separately and do them properly uh, as separate recordings uh, from these chapters alone. Uh, because I preached through the entire book of Galatians many years ago and I have all these backlog of sermons on them. So I thought, you know, I'll just make use of that. And so I record that as my readings for the Daily Bible Reading Show as separate um, uh, episodes. And that way they'll be more helpful, I guess. Not so random, just not not just me making observations, but, you know, they've been prepared, time is spent on the uh, writing of it out. And then I'll just record it in a way that is encouraging and clear. So that's the plan for the two chapters I won't be covering yet. Uh, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Uh, but just for today, I'm going to finish with Galatians chapter 5. I think that's also quite hefty already. So I think I'm really feeling quite tired. So I think I'll just read through this and let's see what we can learn from this together. Oh, 52 minutes already. Okay, I'm going to go over an hour today. Uh, okay, that means more editing. Uh, can't, can't upload it as just one episode. Uh, okay, so Galatians chapter 5. Here it goes. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has set us free. And not standing firm in Christ will mean submitting ourselves to this kind of like slavery, another master, and that we'll be forced to live under. It's talking about sin, but also under the law. You know, we're trying to justify ourselves rather than to realize that Christ has freed us from having to fulfill all these expectations and requirements of the law by our own works. But Christ has done that. But if you don't accept that, you don't stand on that, you will then be submitting yourselves to this kind of like bondage and this weight of expectation of the Old Testament law. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, so he's talking about a specific thing, this mark of circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So they've chosen one example of the law, you know, this thing that makes you Jewish, because to be Jewish means you, of course, have to be circumcised. You can't be Jewish and not be circumcised. But here are non-Jewish people who become Christians. So they've never been circumcised. They've never known that there was this rule before. But now they read the Old Testament. Oh, Moses says you must be circumcised. And there are these Jewish, uh, very zealous Jewish Maybe Christians, maybe not. They come to you and they say, if you want to be Christian, you can trust in Jesus, but you also have to take on this particular mark of circumcision. And Paul says, if you accept this just one thing, you know, you lose Jesus. <laughs> Amazing. Taking this one thing means you lose Jesus. You don't add circumcision to Jesus. You actually take this and you lose him. You replace him with the circumcision. Because, verse 3, anyone who accepts circumcision, this one rule of the law, is obligated, he says, to keep the entire law. It means you're saying, I'm now being accepted by God because I obeyed this law. And essentially, Paul is saying what you're saying to God is, 
I'm going to be accepted by you because I'm going to keep all these laws, everything in the Old Testament. So every single law, every single tiny little rule here, you don't just obey that one. He says, you're obligated. You're under compulsion to obey this entire law. And he says, before you're severed, you're cut off from Christ. You're not just cutting off that small skin. You're actually cutting out your whole self away from Christ. So you're saying this is a really, really big deal, this small act. Because you're essentially saying that it's not enough that Christ has made you whole and acceptable to God, that his work is enough, but you're saying, I want to add my works to that. He said, you're doing that, you disqualify yourself from Christ. And say verse 6, in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working out through love. So it's trusting in Christ. And because you trust in Christ, the fruit of that is that suddenly you, you learn to walk in a way that displays Christ's love for your brothers and sisters. And we'll see that a bit further down the chapter. But yeah, it's trusting Christ and trusting Christ alone. And that's different from trying to trust in your own obedience in trying to fulfill the Old Testament law. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Oh, wait, my, my laptop's dying. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's a close call. Battery almost ran out. Okay, verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Uh, so he's really, really concerned for them. He says, you started out well. You know, you're running well. But then someone is kind of like cut in on you and stop you from obeying the truth. And he says, this kind of thing is not from God. It's not from him who calls you. And he says, a little leaven means these kind of small little tweaks to the gospel. It leavens the whole lump. You know, it can actually affect your entire salvation. It can affect your whole entire church community. And he says, I have confidence that, you know, eventually, if you think about it, you come back to the truth. And this person who is troubling you, he will pay the price. And he says, verse 12, I wish those who trouble you as unsubtle you would emasculate themselves. And say, Kena potong Malay. That means not just snip off a bit for the circumcision, but cut your whole self off. You know, they are so eager. Why don't they cut the whole thing off? And so Paul, you can see, is very, very concerned, very, very passionate, <laughs> almost very offensive in the way that he's describing the people who are really, really af affecting the salvation and the confidence of these young Christians. It's really horrible. You know, when people come in and do this, Paul, you know, Paul feels very, very concerned, but also very angry <laughs> with these troublemakers who come into the church. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Mm. 
So the, yeah, the important thing is being able to love one another. Uh, and what he's saying here is that he's talking to people who actually have this good desire. You know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I want to live according to God's ways. He says, the way that you do that is not by trying to add to God's salvation, by loving you, but by loving your brothers and sisters. They said, that's how you fulfill this law. That's how you reflect God's desires for you through this law. Verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. But he says, as a consequence, as you're trying to outdo one another, trying to impose these kinds of rules on one another, you're biting on one another. Instead, you're it's a careful you don't destroy, eat one another up. That's what consuming is. And that's, that's one, one way of recognizing how these rules that come in actually don't help, or actually any rules. Um, and, and I hesitate to say this because, you know, rules can be very helpful. Guidelines can be just very clarifying. You know, you want to run a church a certain way. You, all of us need some kind of guidelines that just help us get through and work together better. But, you know, sometimes these very well-meaning guidelines can, in a way, be hinted as, as, unless you do this, you're not a Christian. Unless you do this, you're not really saved by God. And we don't ever put it in those words, but just from the way in which we implement them or the way that we enforce them and the way that we judge the people around them in terms of those who do and don't do these rules in a way that is unloving, that bites one another, that almost says, I'm better than you, that you consume one another, that kind of thing. That is, that is unloving and that is actually a threat to our own understanding of the gospel. You know, do you understand Christ and salvation by him alone if you're obsessed almost with being this kind of religious police in your church community? And Paul, Paul says, you know, be careful. You don't devour one another with these rules, rule keeping and rule watching. Verse 16, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident or obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the key word here is those who do or continue to do these things. That means these are almost characteristic of Christians. Can you imagine Christians who do idolatry, Christians who argue with one another, Christians who are jealous of one another, Christians who are rivals and envious and drunken and orgy? It means, you know, the moment you hear that, you go, how can that be? But that, but that's what Paul is saying. You know, you it's obvious that you're not a Christian and you do these kind of things. And that's why he's not saying... Therefore, you disqualify one another. But it just shows that you obviously have not been a Christian. You know, you've not allowed, you know, Christ to rule over your hearts, but you just want to do whatever you want to do in the name of yourself and using Christ as an excuse. It says, I warn you that those who do or live or continue to do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so in contrast to all these kinds of like uh, law-breaking, unloving, selfish ways of living is this character. You know, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. There's just one fruit, but then there are all these nine different characteristics. They're all character traits of um of what it means to have the spirit inside of you but it's a whole package you can't say oh i have love but i don't have the rest i have love joy peace but i don't have the rest but no it's it's a package you have you need to have aspects of all of these if you are to demonstrate the fruit of the spirit love you know loving one another you know god's love especially that sacrificial love peace you know peacefulness peace with god but also just generally not sowing that discord again patience you know taking your time especially in bearing one another in love kindness you know um that it's it's a it's an act of showing love you know showing kindness towards one another goodness goodness you know um actually a, a kind of a nature and a kind of uh, character that shows that you are constantly seeking the good of others Faithfulness, you know, being trustworthy, you know, dependable. Gentleness, character, you know, it's such that you're not that hard person. You know, you're actually soft in terms of being approachable, maybe even being likable. Self-control, not, not something, someone who is impulsive, but someone who kind of like almost has a reign over their own uh, words sometimes, you know, own reactions. Again, combination of that patience but also just keeping things under monitor and just uh, knowing that sometimes you just need to take your time and rein in that reaction to that particular situation that you're in and yeah again such things that there's no law and those who belong to christ jesus they've crucified they killed out the flesh with all the desires and the passions to do something that's contrary to this verse 25 if we live by the spirit then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's really a strong connection here with um, Proverbs chapter 6. You know, just this person who sows discord, sows problems, you know, between one another amongst brothers. But actually the person who lives by the Spirit keeps in step with the Spirit. It means it's a constant thing again. Um, you know, if you're in a music team, the most important uh, musician and music team, uh, my old music director, Jesse, used to tell me the most important person is the drummer. Because the drummer is not the pianist. Everyone thinks it's the pianist or even the guitarist or even the song leader, but actually the drummer. The drummer is the person who keeps the time for the entire team. And everyone needs to listen to the drummer. The drummer is king. And so the drummer is like the spirit who's is drumming dry and you have to keep in step sometimes you go too fast and you need to go back sometimes you're not fast enough you keep in step with the spirit so the spirit is almost giving you prompts daily constantly and you're constantly going okay god you know why are you leaving me to do how do i keep in step with the spirit that's living inside of me such that i live according to his will his desires his passions not my own and therefore let us not become conceited verse 26 and provoke one another so when when starting with my own pride and that pride then causes me to like <laughs> provoke one another, to cause divisions amongst one another, and then envying one another. Say, so I want, I that's my thing. I I don't want you to have that thing. I want that to be mine. 
And so instead of focusing on that person or even on myself, you need to focus on the Spirit. Because what is it that God wants me to do? It's taking us out of myself. It's not thinking of myself, not even thinking, uh, uh, looking in a very unloving way towards my neighbor. But first of all, you know, knowing that actually there's something almost external to you living inside of you, prompting you, guiding you, creating this fruit, bearing this fruit. It's like a plant bearing this character fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That this over time, sometimes it doesn't occur occur immediately but over time you recognize all these different facets and aspects of god's salvation and sanctification and love bearing fruit growing in your own lives and hopefully growing in the lives of everyone in your community in your family as well how beautiful it is if we actually had this kind of character um growing in your church and oftentimes you know i um uh, I would say if this were a Bible study, I wouldn't say, oh, does your, is your Bible study loving? Is it joy, peaceful? Is it patience? Because oftentimes uh, you either get polarizing and say, yes, it's loving, or say, oh, we are not so loving. But I would say, you know, if you look just the past year, last 12 months, have you seen uh, growth in this fruit, this keeping a step with this spirit in terms of, say, love? You know, go one by one, love in terms of joy in terms of the peace and rest in God, in terms of just being more patient? Or have you seen things kind of like slip back and you need to keep back in, in step again? And really, it's, it's again something to be measured over time, something to be measured across, you know, not just yourself, but maybe amongst your community. A lot of these things are relational characteristics. You know, you can't just be faithful on your own. You know, faithfulness means you're trusting one another. Gentleness means in dealing with one another. Patience, again, is, again, dealing with one another. Love also, you can't just love on your own, your own self. But again, it's all these are relational characteristics of what it means for you to live and love within a community of God. And if you do this over time, you know, other people will notice it, you'll notice it in other people, and there will be that evidence and the kind of encouragement from, that comes from just seeing God's Spirit bear fruit in the lives of our community here in church. Hopefully you see that. Uh, if not, it's something to pray towards, something to work towards, um, especially uh, if you are tempted to live in a contrary way to this. And really, I think God will honor such prayers, this, such desires to want to live according to his way. Um, actually, that's a good point to end <laughs> and to pray for this fruit of the Spirit. So why don't you join me in praying? Uh, Lord, we thank you so much that this is a byproduct of the Spirit that you've already given us and that already lives inside of us. And so what we really pray for is this fruit to grow more and more especially as we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. This love, this joy, this peace, this patience, this kindness, this goodness, faithfulness, this gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.